Father, we do praise you and thank you for the victory in Jesus, that the king came and he made the lame walk, the blind see, the mute hear. He taught your word and he saved sinners to come and bring them into your kingdom. And we look forward to the day when he will come and he will reign and the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And we pray that today as we come to your word, we would be humble underneath it. We would be have teachable hearts to receive your word, to be hearers and doers of the word, that this would not be an academic exercise. Pray that you would bless this time and you'd be honored in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's great to see you all today. I am particularly thankful to be here. We've had a lot of sickness going through my home and still going through my home, so hope that I don't go down with it, but um, I wasn't sure even last night, like, okay, I hope, hope it's going to work out that I'll be here, and so I'm very thankful to be here with you guys today. I know a lot of people are out sick, so I'm praying that this is a short-lived season for us. As we begin, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, I just wanted to review a little bit from last week what we had studied, and just as I know some of you I talked too fast and you didn't get to write it down, so I'm going to go a little slower. I'm going to give you the purpose statement of our study again. When I do the night group, they'll just, I'm not recorded, so they'll just stop me and say, one more time, and by the time I was done repeating it three or four times, I was like, there's no way the morning group got this. So I apologize, and so we'll just review again with the purpose of our study. So the purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole, and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. So the purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole, and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. One more time. The purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through Scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole, and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. And you can come get me afterwards if you want to still write it down because I won't do that. So last week we said we were talking about the, re- the arrival of the king. And we said that all of Matthew 1 through 4 is showing us that the king has arrived from the genealogy to his, how he's the greater Moses, remember how he said Herod was the new Pharaoh, to how the Magi are bringing, are the kings coming to worship him and bringing him um, the wealth of the world, to John the Baptist announcing him, to even how he passes all the Davidic tests. When he passed the test in the wilderness, to how he passed the test that David failed to become the true Davidic king. And so Matthew has established that he is the king. And today we're going to look at the teaching and miracles of the king. That's what we're going to be looking at today, Matthews 5 through 11, the teaching and the miracles of the king. And as I was studying, again, my Todd Bolin, a professor at the Masters University, he summarized this section of scripture very easily and concisely, and he said that Jesus presented himself as the Messiah to the nation of Israel in two primary ways, teaching and miracles. The teaching explained the requirements to enter the kingdom. The miracles proved his identity as the one sent by God. So two ways The teaching explains the requirements to enter the kingdom. The miracles prove his identity as the Son of God. And that's what we're going to be seeing today. And we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. And so we read in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And right here, we start seeing a lot of parallels with Moses. Okay, sorry, how do I fix this so it doesn't... Hopefully that fixes that. Okay, so 
Remember that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, right? And then he brings the law down to the people. Well, Jesus is going up on the mountain, and he's going to teach them the law. He is going to teach them, and his emphasis is on the fullness of the law and what it was always intending. Because the Pharisees at this point have really warped it. They have added their oral traditions to it. They have added a lot of teachings to the law. And Jesus doesn't go up and explain, this is the full meaning of the law, and this was the intention of the law. So just like Moses went up on a mountain, Jesus is going up on the mountain, and he is going to teach. And Luke, in his... <coughs> passage on the Sermon on the Mount says he comes down, which he does come down later, and so just like Moses brought it down to the people, and just a lot, uh, there are more, but there are parallels of how Jesus is the one greater than Moses, and so as we come to this, we see that Jesus is going to teach them, and we just begin with the Beatitudes. So if you read with me in chapter 2, it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, bookends the Beatitudes so that they are one unit. And we saw this in the lesson. The Beatitudes aren't describing... Um, well, maybe I'm a meek person, so I inherit the earth, but you're pure in heart. This is one person who receives one reward, the kingdom of heaven. So if you want entrance into the kingdom, this is who you have to be. And this would be fairly shocking information, I think, for the Jews at that time, because they thought, if you're a child of Abraham, you get to go to the kingdom. You know, if you're a Jew, if you're, a, if you're in the covenant promises, you get entrance. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm talking to the true Israel, right? We talked about how there's always a believing remnant. I'm talking to those who want to enter the kingdom. They have to have a righteousness. We'll get to that a little bit later in the sermon that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, right? You have to be this person. You have to be a kingdom person. And Matthew continually refers to this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Remember, he's talking to a mainly Jewish audience. We talked about that last week. And the Jews were very careful about speaking God's name, how they wrote God's name. They wouldn't, even today, they'll write G-D. You know, they won't write out God's name. And so instead of calling this the kingdom of God because of their sensibilities, he's calling it the kingdom of heaven. But it's the same thing. In, when you hear in the other Gospels the kingdom of God, it's the same as the kingdom of heaven. What kingdom is this? It's the kingdom that Daniel saw in Daniel 2. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar had the vision of the statue? And, there were the, and, he, and Daniel comes and interprets and says, here's what each part of the statue represents. It represents different kingdoms. And in Matthew, uh, in, sorry, in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 44, it says, And in, those day, in, the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall come after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. That's the kingdom from heaven. That's the kingdom of God. It's also referred to in Zechariah 14. I'm not going to read all of Zechariah 14 to you, but I'm going to read some select verses about this kingdom. And in, starting in verse 5, it says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other southward. And then jumping down, it says, the, earth, um, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no light, 
cold or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer and winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And then in verse 11, and it shall be inhabited, speaking of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall be inhabited where there shall never again be a decree for utter dis destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This is the kingdom that he's talking about. And if you want to be in the kingdom, and if you want to have entrance, this is the person, the Beatitudes, this is the person that you have to be. But we're not in that kingdom right now, are we? And that's not to say that God isn't ruling over history or that he isn't ruling in the lives of believers, but we're not under, like, he's not our government today on this earth, right? He's not, we don't have one world where, where the curse is reversed and where all the sad things have come untrue yet. We're still waiting for that fullness of the kingdom. We're still waiting for that reign. And while we wait, what does verse 11 tell us? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. And um, Abner Chow speaking on this says that this truth, this points the world to the truth of the kingdom when we suffer for it. When we suffer for the kingdom, we are pointing the world to the truth because why would you suffer? The way, when you think about this, we haven't experienced it in America, but when you think, going all the way back to the prophets, the suffering that the prophets had under all the kings, the suffering that all of the disciples had, the suffering that the new church had, the suffering that goes on today in most of the world if you claim Christ. Why would people die and suffer for uh, the degree that they do? Because they have a kingdom that's coming. Because we have the greatest hope, we have the greatest suffering. And so because our hope is so great, and because it is something so it's it, it's the real hope isn't it right everything else is, is a counterfeit they have we have a true hope and a true kingdom that's coming we suffer for that and that's what we call right an eternal perspective that we are not living for what is temporary so when we look at the beatitudes and we think about the suffering that's going to come by being a kingdom person we endure that by having an eternal respect perspective that our hope is to come that our king is coming and that what will last and what will be forever will be the joy and the happiness and the perfection, and that this is temporary, right? But for now, we will suffer. And we're going to see later that that suffering does cause some surprise for his disciples. We see that with John the Baptist, um, that they weren't expecting the suffering. So this teaching is really critical to know that this is part of the plan. It doesn't mean that the plan's failing. It doesn't mean that God's kingdom isn't coming. It doesn't mean that God's not in control. This is part of what we are to expect. Well, that brings us to um, the salt and the light in verses... 13 through 16. And the salt and the light really reminds Israel, this was your purpose. Again, in the lesson, what did, what, did God, what did we say from Leviticus and Exodus was Israel's purpose? They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be calling the world to belief in their Messiah. They were supposed to be the city on the hill, but they weren't. They were in danger of losing their commission. They are uh, failing their commission, I should say. They were not being what they were supposed to be. So he's reminding them, this is what you're supposed to be about. And this is not how that they're functioning in the world. And then we come to the heart of the sermon, to the key part, verses 5, 17 through 20. And where Christ says, Do not think 
that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And again, we see the high view that Christ has of Scripture. He's affirming that the Old Testament is Scripture. He's affirming that it matters and it's truth, right? And he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest letter, right? The smallest Hebrew letter, not a dot. That's like an apostrophe, right? Not the smallest part of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying you have to have, what, a perfect righteousness. The king, remember when we were in Leviticus, we said that the people had to be holy. Leviticus was all about holiness. But we said they had to be holy when we came to Numbers to go into the land. That you couldn't have, that an unholy people was not going to possess the promised land, but only a holy people. Well, an unrighteous person is not going to possess the kingdom. It's only the righteous who are going to go into the kingdom. And it's not a righteousness that's man-made like the Pharisees. It's not a righteousness where you check a box. It's the righteousness that he's going to lay out in the whole sermon, which pushes us and points us to the fact that none of us can do this, can we? Right? None of us can fulfill this righteousness. None of us can be perfect. And it goes back to what we talked about last week. We have to have a second Adam. We have to have a second David. We have to have one who will stand in our place, who will represent us. And that's what he says here, right? That he, Christ is going to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? But there's also something else I want us to note in here. It says that those who take away from God's word, they're least in the kingdom. John MacArthur, in his study Bible, had I thought a very helpful quote on this that I wanted to share with you. <clears throat> he said, the consequence of practicing or teaching disobedience of any of God's word is to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus declares that he will hold those in lowest esteem who hold his word in low esteem. There is no impunity for believers who disobey, discredit, or belittle God's law. Jesus does not refer to loss of salvation is clear from the fact that though the offenders will be called least, they will still be in the kingdom of heaven. The positive result is that whoever keeps and teaches God's word, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here again, Jesus mentions the two aspects of doing and teaching. Kingdom citizens are to uphold every part of God's law, both in their living and in their teaching. And I just love that reminder as we're studying the word, how important it is to do exactly that, to study the word, to know it, to not belittle it, disobey it, discredit it, pick and choose what parts are convenient for us. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of uh, known. I feel like people will be like, oh, I don't like this part of the Bible. I don't like the part of the Bible they all like is this part, right? And like the Sermon on the Mount, that's the part I believe, where Jesus is like, well, I love it. They don't understand because they're picking and choosing. They don't understand it in its full context. They don't understand that he's saying you have to have perfect righteousness or you don't enter the kingdom, right? So we can't pick and choose. We can't belittle God's law that causes us to be least. And we have to have a righteousness that is greater than our own, the righteousness that only comes through the king. Well, then Christ goes on to, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and he discusses anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation. We looked at these in depth in the lesson. And I just want us to note the phrase, right? He says, you've heard it taught. Well, who taught him that? The Pharisees, right? You've heard it taught that you can basically have whatever internal attitude you want to have as long as externally you can check these boxes. You can have a really angry heart and a bad temper and hate people, just don't kill them. You can lust after women, just don't commit adultery. And then the way the Pharisees did that was they would just divorce people. Here's a certificate of divorce so they could tweak the law there. 
you know, and you, you don't have to keep your word, you know, and Jesus goes through and says, that's not true. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I, here's the fullness of the law. Here's the, what the law intended. Here is who we have to be. Todd Bowen says, the common, convenient interpretation of, the, of this is going to land you in hell. True righteousness that is sufficient for entrance to the kingdom of God is a true following of the Mosaic law and its internal reality. And that should point us to what Deuteronomy pointed us to, that we have to have circumcised hearts. We can't do it. It points us to a Savior. Well, when we come to chapter 6 in the um, Sermon on the Mount, there's kind of a shift in how, from the Beatitudes and the fi- teachings of the Pharisees to how we're supposed to live um, waiting for the kingdom. Before that, we come to the, the giving to the needy, the Lord's Prayer, and the fasting. And again, the Pharisees had perverted all this, right? They had turned it into an external show. They had turned it into a way that they got praise and it was about them. But in his sermon, um, Drawing Near to the All-Knowing God, Don Green, he was a pastor at my old church, he, he points out that this part of scripture really shows us how we should be responding to God's character. Because what happens in each of these sections? He's, you, know, you give, and what does he say? But you know that your father sees you. You don't give so that man sees you. You give so that God sees you. And he says, you don't fast so that man sees you. You fast so that God sees you. And you don't pray to get credit. What is that attribute of God? God is omniscient. He sees. He hears. He knows. And how are we to respond in light of God's omniscience? God's attributes aren't just abstract that don't have direct relationship to our life. God is omniscient. And so you don't need to do any of these things for credit for man. You just want God to please you. You give in secret because God sees you. And when he went through the prayers... Don Green pointed out six responses that our prayers are supposed to have to the fact that God is omniscient. So I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer, and then I'm going to pause and just share um, how, he, how he phrased those responses. I thought it was really helpful. So it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's profound reverence. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Doesn't that have so much more weight now that we've been studying the kingdom since, since the beginning, since last year in Genesis? And that is a kingdom preference. We are supposed to desire the kingdom in our heart. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is humble obedience. We're supposed to desire the kingdom and desire his will, humble obedience. Give us this day our daily bread. That's physical dependence on the Lord. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's honest repentance before the Lord. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's spiritual dependence. God is all-knowing. God is all-present. We pray we're supposed to have profound reverence for him. We're supposed to have a kingdom preference in our hearts. We're supposed to have humble obedience, physical dependence, honest repentance, and spiritual dependence. And I wanted to stop and look at that just because I when we go through the lessons and we says, what does this teach you about God or what do you learn about God's character here? That has a direct impact in how we live and how we respond to the Lord. And we see that right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, then it goes on to how do you wait for the kingdom? The kingdom, how are we supposed to live while we're waiting for Christ to come? And again, we saw that in the lesson. We're not to lay up our treasure in heaven. I mean, we are on earth. We're supposed to lay it up in heaven. We're supposed to have, again, that eternal perspective. We're not to be anxious because the Lord is going to take care of us. We're to be dealing with sin in our own life, not worrying about judging other people. We are to be living in prayer, depending on the Lord in prayer, and loving others the way that we would like to be loved. And then as he comes to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, 
he issues an invitation. We're Baptists. We should love this, right? He issues an invitation. There are two ways, right? There is the narrow way or the wide way. There is the way to destruction, which is a wide path that many are on, or the narrow gate. There are two kinds of, right? There's two kinds of fruit. There's the tree that bears good fruit or the tree that doesn't bear fruit. And then there are two homes, the house that is built on a foundation that will endure or the house that has no foundation and will be destroyed. And what does he say when he gets to verse 24 of chapter 7? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That phrase hears, remember, isn't that just reminding you of the prophets? They'll, they will be always you know, listening but never hearing, right? This is for the one who can truly hear. This is for the one who can truly receive the word of God. And then in verse 26, it says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So Jesus says, here's the truth of the kingdom, here's the truth of the law, and you have a choice to be in the kingdom or to be out of the kingdom. Well, do you remember, as we go to point two, we're going to look now at the miracles of the king. Do you remember in 2 Samuel when 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant is given to David. And then when we studied chapters 8, 9, even some of 10, we saw the power of the Davidic covenant, that the king who rules this, here's what it will look like. You'll have victories over your enemies, and you will prosper in all your ways. And we just saw, like, all these wonderful things that it just seems like, wow, David can't, David's on a roll. Nothing can stop David. But that was because of the Davidic covenant. It was because of his obedience at that time, too, to the Davidic covenant. Well, Jesus has just spoken with great authority. He's rebuked their spiritual leaders. He said, this is what the law of Moses is all about. I am the fulfillment of the law. And now he's going to back that up. He's going he's to show the miracles that he says, I am the king. I do have the authority. I have the right to preach and teach this. Then we looked at this in the lesson, so we're just going to look at it. Um, I'm going to go through it quickly. Again, Todd Bolin just pulled it together in a really concise list. But in Matthew 8, 6, he heals the lame man. Well, that is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And in 8, 14 through 17, it says that he is going to, um, he heals the sick and the lame. For sh- and then that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then in Matthew 9, 30, he opens the eyes of the blind, and he makes the mute here, and um, Isaiah 35 says, And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And in Matthew 9.25, he raises the dead girl to life. And Isaiah 25.8 says, He will swallow up death forever. And in Matthew 8.5, remember after he heals the lepers, he says, you're supposed to, Here's what you're supposed to do. You go to the temple, just like, here's how you obey the law of Moses. And he tells them exactly how to obey it. Remember Deuteronomy 17, the king is supposed to know the law and follow the law and obey it. We see that Christ submits to the law. He knows it. He obeys it even in how he heals people. He's qualified to be the king because he submits to God's word. In Matthew 8.32, he casts out the demons, right? And that takes us back to Genesis 3.15. We are looking for one who can crush the serpent and the seed of the serpent. And we see that that's me one who has to have power over, you know, Satan and demons, spiritual authority. And Christ has that. He can cast out the demons. And then we see in Matthew 9.6, he forgives sins. And that should take us right back to Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7, right, where God for the first time reveals his name to Moses, and what does he say? Who forgives sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And so the Jews knew instantly that when he said he forgave sins, he was claiming to be God, right? Because they know Exodus 20, 34, like we know John 3, 16, 
Like they know that this is when God revealed his name and this is how he revealed his character and they know he's claiming to be God. So uh, through all these miracles, God is saying, I am him. And do you also see, sometimes we think that the New Testament is where we see God as compassionate and merciful, but these are all fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. These are all fulfillments from Isaiah and Genesis. So that there was so much hope um, and promise for what the, the Savior was going to accomplish, what he was going to make right in the Old Testament. But when Jesus does all of these things, and he's done all these works, he's taught them, he's shown through his miracles, his authority, he demands a response. He demands a response, and we see that. We see that in the centurion. If you look in, um, sorry, I lost my spot here. Um, chapter 8, the centurion's faith. And we are supposed to have faith just like the centurion does. And we see it in um, how we're, he's called to, we're called to follow him. When Jesus calls the disciples, he says you're supposed to follow him, you're supposed to trust like the centurion, and then he says that you're supposed to pray that the Lord will send many out into the harvest in Matthew 9. So we're supposed to trust, we are supposed to have faith, and we are supposed to share the good news of the gospel. He demands a response even as he's proving and giving this authority into his teaching. Well, then in chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples, and he, in this time, he's, he knows, this is next week's lesson, but he knows he's going to be rejected. And he even prophesies about how later they're going to be rejected. And so he's multiplying his efforts. He's getting the message out. So he's sending them, to, he senses the urgency that he, ha he knows the cross is coming. He knows he has a limited time to do earthly ministry. And he's multiplying the efforts to get the message out. And then we come to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we, it says in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Why do you think John is questioning at this point why Jesus is the Messiah? Flip back to Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, verse 11, John is preaching. He's calling people to repent. And half, about halfway through verse 11, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is John expecting right now? He is expecting the judgment. He is expecting the unquenchable fire. He is expecting that the wheat and the tares are going to be separated. He is not expecting to be imprisoned, right? He's expecting that the kingdom is coming now, and that the judgment is coming now, and that's what we've been preaching, repent. And so he, this is unexpected, and he's he's... I think there's doubt here, and, but he's, he goes to the right person for the answer, doesn't he? He goes to Christ, and what does Jesus say? He says, and Jesus answered them, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The prophecies are coming fulfilled. I am the king. The kingdom is coming, but you're going to have to trust because there's going to be suffering with the kingdom. In fact, I skipped over it unintentionally. Go back to chapter 10. The end of chapter 10, verse 38, he says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Christ costs everything, right? There is no half measures. There is no on our term. It calls for complete submission. And when he says take up your cross, you know, we wear crosses on jewelry now. But that'd be like saying, pick up your electric, electric chair 
or your lethal injection. This was how you executed criminals. This was a very graphic description to them of what it would cost to follow Christ. That it costs everything. And we don't experience the kind of persecution in America, and I am thankful <laughs> that God has been so gracious to our nation, and I pray that he will be for many years to come. But that ki the kind of persecution, that or the lack of persecution we have is not normal, right? What is normal for the church is great, great persecution for your faith. So I was, as I was thinking about this, and I was just thinking about the sermon, and I was praying through it, um, I was just thinking that while I don't... There's a poem I want to share with you about um, self-denial. And in one sense, I feel like it doesn't go quite far enough because we're called to take up our cross. But I actually feel like for how we live in America, it's very applicable for us to think through how do we be people of the kingdom? And it's really to deny ourselves. And I have copies here so that you don't have to try to take notes. If you enjoy it, you can come grab a copy um, right afterwards. You can just listen as I read. Um, I think that the right response to this is to look in our life and see how we can fight against the flesh and kill the flesh and die to self. And this says, when you are forgotten or neglected or purpo purpo purposely set at naught, and you don't sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality, or any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any climate, any society, any raiment, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good words or itch after commendation, when you can truly seek, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. Are you dead yet? In these last days, the Spirit would bring us to the cross that I may know him being ma made conformable unto his death. The author is unknown, but I have a copy of this. This has been around for a while, but it gets me every time. Um, so I just wanted to share, like, I, I think that this is the right response as we conclude our Sermon on the Mount to be seeking to love Christ more. What did, what did, what did Job say? That I may decrease, that he might increase, right? And we can do that through dying to self. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these women. I thank you for the beautiful sunshine, the freedom that we enjoy that we have a copy of your Bible, that we can read it and meet together and discuss it um, free of fear and the privilege that it is. But I pray that we would not take it for granted, that we would not be lazy, that we wouldn't make light of your word because it's so accessible to us, but we would seek to follow it, to kill the flesh, to kill sin, to live obedient lives 
that we would be kingdom people, that we would be marked by the Beatitudes. We'd be marked by an inward reality that reflects you and the work that your son is doing and your spirit is doing in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.